This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, the world's smartest network, in partnership with New York University Grossman School of Medicine. It was sponsored by Johnson & Johnson. First, do no harm. Physicians have been swearing some version of this oath for nearly 2,000 years. Like the rod of Asclepius, cold stethoscopes, and the phrase, say ah, the vow to practice ethically has become indelibly linked with medicine. And yet, while physicians and medical researchers strive to avoid intentional harm, what if the unintentional? How do internal biases and external pressures influence the way doctors treat patients or researchers develop new medicines? These are particularly interesting questions to ask right now. It may be an understatement to say that healthcare took a beating in 2020. And not just the strain on the clinicians on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, risking their lives just to keep their patients breathing, or the researchers scrambling to understand the virus upending lives in every human settlement on Earth. 2020 also tested the way medicine is reported and talked about. It tested systems designed to counteract misinformation. It tested the fundamental tenets and ethics of medicine. Conflicts of interest, both actual and speculative, routinely made international news. And so, in early March 2021, the New York Academy of Sciences and NYU's Grossman School of Medicine, with sponsorship from Johnson & Johnson, convened a conference, by Zoom naturally, to discuss conflicts of interest in healthcare and reflect on some of the lessons learned in this last tumultuous year. Here's Dr. Art Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Grossman and the chairman of the organizing committee for this conference. When we came up with the topic some time ago of looking at conflicts of interest, I, I thought it would be very relevant and timely to do it, but it has become extraordinarily relevant and timely. The past year has seen tremendous back and forth and discussion about politics, mixing with the science of COVID in highly charged, visible ways that have led to many charges of bias or distortion, not honoring one's role or duties as a scientist or physician or public health person. We've seen industry influence, you know, traditionally a concern about conflict of interest, shaping and tilting research. But pharma is now among the heroes of the battle against COVID-19 virus. Its role, you know, being acknowledged and praised for vaccine development, antibody development, even tests, really shifting the uh, terrain, the valence, if you will, of industry vis-a-vis -vis serving public health and the public interest. There are many, many calls for partnering among academia, industry, not-for-profits, more than I think we might have seen pre-COVID to try and advance clinical research that certainly are going to have fallout and consequences post-COVID. I think there's a new world emerging about how to do clinical research, its speed, and even in the communication and coverage about science and medicine. I would have said pre-COVID, science and medical coverage was important, but it wasn't sort of central or mainstream to what all media were doing. It certainly is now. It's one of the major 
mainstream topics and battles exist there about the very notion of objectivity and how one remains free of bias in coverage in an area where advocacy, personal views, and even assessments of the political religious motivation of the uh, scientists or doctors or politicians or public health officials that you're covering has become one of the main tensions. Here's Dr. Barbara Redman, also from the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU. It seems to me that we have institutions in which conflict of interest is not well controlled, in part because we just don't have the frameworks for it or the will to control it. And there's high rates of underreporting in many areas. So why is this? Why is conflict of interest such a pernicious problem in health and medicine? One of the reasons is that while sometimes these conflicts arise intentionally, Far more often, they are accidental, unconscious. Most healthcare providers and medical researchers strive to be objective because they recognize that this is what will generate the best results for their patients and society at large. But like everyone else, doctors have implicit biases. The prejudices, attitudes, and behaviors we might not even realize we have, and which may actually oppose our conscious beliefs. Despite being so subtle that we don't even notice them, implicit biases often govern the way that we make choices and interact with others. In part, this is because we're all products of our environment. We're shaped by our cultures, our families, and the people we admire. From an early age, we learn to navigate the world based on the experiences and observations of others, all of whom carry their own biases, which they learn from others, and so on. Additionally, human beings are really, really good at identifying patterns and are more easily influenced by information that confirms the way we think the world is or should be. This is all just part of being human. Here's Dr. Jason Dana, a behavioral scientist at the Yale School of Management. The issue is that when some people think about succumbing to a conflict of interest, for instance, in the case of a physician, they hold a model, at least implicitly, that it's a matter of consciously putting aside the interests of the patient, consciously putting other interests ahead of those of the patient, which is something only a bad apple would do. And the behavioral ethics approach, I guess, presents a second way of looking at the problem, which is perhaps more sympathetic and applies to most of us, not just the bad apples. And that's just that we have thought patterns uh, that allow us to reach favored conclusions and rationalize behavior that otherwise we would not approve of even of ourselves. And we do this without necessarily even knowing we're doing it. So in short, uh, my perspective is that when we deal with conflicts of interest, that we have unconscious and unintentional biases in our decision-making that we're all prone to having we start to reach conclusions that are not necessarily in the patient's best interest. They're ones that we wish were in the patient's best interest, things that we wish were true. And we have biases that allow us to, to rationalize this sort of behavior. In the wider world, implicit bias can mean a lot of things. Maybe you hear the phrase flight attendant and immediately think of a woman, even though you know that anyone can be a flight attendant. Maybe you meet someone with a non-English name and are surprised when they don't have a foreign accent. Maybe you avoid pit bulls, even though you've never been bitten by a dog in your life. Patterns like these, however subconscious, can have real consequences. Perhaps a qualified job candidate gets passed over because of their name, or a female student is discouraged from pursuing a career in science. Here's Dr. Andrea Jones-Roy, a professor of data science at NYU. 
there are two different ways that I think about bias. So one is the biases that are in our heads and all these sorts of uh, heuristics that we have to simplify situations and to make sense of them. Out there in the world, when I work with companies about things like workplace bias or bias in hiring or bias in deciding who your best performer is and who should get the raise or the promotion, we're using those same techniques, but we also think about it in terms of sexism, racism, you know, prioritizing certain nationalities or people who speak English with a native language. Even numbers, hard information, supposedly clean and objective, can hide hidden biases. The other side of bias that I spend a lot of time thinking about is biased data, right? So data itself can be biased. And normally we think about things like selection bias or response bias. So who is opting into our study or our trial and are people in the case of political research telling me the truth when I do you know, a public opinion survey? Are those biased results? And so I find that when I talk about bias with people, sometimes people get very angry that I'm accusing you of being racist or sexist when I say we're all biased. But then when we say things like data is biased, it's usually, I think, because the humans who have collected the data have not been as thoughtful as they might be about who's showing up in that data set in the first place. What is it that we're trying to measure? Biases against people of color, for example, mean that black, Latino, and indigenous Americans are often excluded from clinical trials, resulting in a data set that isn't representative of the broader population. In fact, this lack of inclusion slowed the development of COVID vaccines. In initial development, black Americans accounted for only 3 to 5% of vaccine trials, despite representing 13% of the U.S. population, and despite the disproportionately high health risks to them posed by COVID. In a study on the effects of the antiviral drug remdesivir, a study funded by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Native Americans made up less than 1% of all those enrolled, despite being almost twice as likely to die from COVID as non-Hispanic whites. There are, of course, complex underlying reasons for disparities like this. Longstanding mistrust of healthcare professionals, for example, and economic or geographic barriers to access. But often, marginalized communities simply aren't asked to participate in clinical studies. Women, too, are often underrepresented in clinical trials, leading to medical treatments that are assumed to work the same in women as they do in men, despite significant differences in their biology. So how does this happen to people whose entire profession is built on principles of evidence and objectivity? Here's Dr. Donald Berry, a professor of biostatistics at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. People become entrapped in what they've been doing. They learn to love their product, and it can do no wrong. They discount bad data. They, uh, they accentuate the positive, the old song, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. This can be devastating. Uh, it can lead to continuing to treat a patient on the individual level, continuing to treat a patient with a, with a therapy that is no longer or perhaps never was beneficial for the patient. It can lead to, and I deal with this a lot, developing a therapy that should have been abandoned a long time ago, but you continue to focus on the the positive and you know it has on data that show that they're positive in the extreme cases and these are extreme uh it can lead to fraud it can lead to people making up data 
It can lead to people even making up clinical trials. These preferences and prejudices can erode the otherwise sound judgment of a healthcare professional and make them vulnerable to conflicts of interest. If internal biases open the door to these conflicts, external factors are what push people through. Conflicts of interest in healthcare might arise from a desire to maintain funding for a critical study or improve patients' online reviews of their care. Maybe there's political pressure to prove the efficacy of a controversial treatment or personal pressure to help out a friend. Dr. Cynthia Patton is general counsel and secretary at Verily Life Sciences, a division of Alphabet, the parent company of Google. She's seen this preferential treatment firsthand. Someone in my family was diagnosed with cancer and I made a few phone calls because I'm in the healthcare industry and I received, um, and my family member received unbelievable attention. Yet months prior, talking to a friend who was in a fairly similar situation and she was just fumbling through the healthcare system, not able to get anybody to really provide her with the answers that she needed, with the time that she needed. And, and it was disturbing to me to see the difference in, in the treatment. And I think in healthcare generally, as in maybe all things, we're, we're all humans and we don't know what biases we have. And so unless people call them out, you're not going to be able to act on them. Sometimes, healthcare providers find themselves at the mercy of vast political machines. Bureaucratic and partisan interests can overwhelm the otherwise reliable processes that protect scientific integrity, with experts' voices being lost in the din. This has never been quite as clear as in the era of COVID, when every aspect of the pandemic, from contact tracing to the necessity of masks, from the development and rollout of vaccines to the very name of the disease, has been fiercely politicized. Dr. Rick Bright is an immunologist and senior vice president of pandemic prevention and response with the Rockefeller Foundation. In 2020, Dr. Bright was working as the director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, when he began to feel political pressure to support unproven drug treatments for COVID-19. After voicing his objections, Dr. Bright was reassigned to a different role in the Department of Health and Human Services. Here's Dr. Bright reflecting on how times of crisis can motivate opportunists or simply be a vehicle for unreliable science. You know, we're used to this. Um, thousands of those experts approach the government every single year with the silver bullet with the magic potion, with the, the snake oil in most cases. And some of them are really well intended with some limited data and just looking for help to get the next data set. Some of them really wanna sell you the whole ballpark before you even have a team to put on it. And it is intensified during the pandemic. We saw it, we, we tens of thousands of those experts coming to government at the White House level, at the departmental level, at the agency level, um, all with their cure. In the chaos, just communicating about the disease became a struggle, to say nothing of understanding how to treat it. It was a fight. We did have delays from political pressure. We did have a lot of interference. Politicians, current and past, lobbyists, current and past, high-ranking military officials, current and past, company officials from around the world, trying at every angle to drive science through politics 
and to drive science through press releases. Of all the ways conflict of interest can rear its head, financial incentives are the most influential and perhaps the most difficult to confront. Drug research isn't free, and medical science cannot advance without substantial investment from private companies and or government entities. These issues have become particularly pronounced in the age of COVID. Here's Dr. Kaplan. There's budget cuts, hospitals have been damaged. They often underwrite the work that uh, medical schools do. And uh, I hear it from my own colleagues at NYU. I hear it from many, many others that the pressure on them to get money uh, in order to survive is uh, about as bad as it could be. So how do we handle that? What are we going to do if conflict of interest is downplayed because survival is pressing? At the end of the day, somebody has to foot the bill. What, if anything, do clinicians and researchers owe the investors who make their work possible? Here's Dr. Christopher T. Robertson of Boston University and Dr. Bernard Lowe from the University of California, San Francisco. I am primarily focused on financial relationships because the research is so clear that having either self-referral relationships or relationships with drug and device companies or having fee-for-service insurance relationships do actually change physician behaviors in predictable ways. Even small things, small gifts to individual doctors, uh, meals and such, have an impact on prescribing. But large amounts of dollars may have even more impact. These relationships can be quite subtle, and healthcare professionals can be influenced in ways that don't immediately register as financial transactions. Here's James Sheehan, chief of the Charities Bureau of New York State and the keynote speaker for this event. If you've gone to meetings of physicians, and I've been a number of them, where physicians say, I would never sell out my professional license and my responsibility to my patients for X, whatever it is, whether it's a meal or $10,000 or whatever else. And the reality is we're dealing not just with a conscious issue here, we're dealing with the unconscious and very human reaction, the fact of reciprocity. So I would go to conferences and in hotels in Washington and Baltimore and New York. And in our room would be the compliance group. We'd all be very serious with bullet points and so forth. And the next room would be the sales convention. They'd be singing songs and stamping on the floor and being incredibly enthusiastic about whatever it was they were marketing. And there is a conflict that we don't really see discussed in the literature between the creativity that is associated with non-compliant behaviors, which is rule-breaking basically, and organizational constraints, and how it drives people, both as groups and as individuals. And here's Dr. Kelly Brownell of Duke University's World Food Policy Center, posing a question to Dr. David Ludwig, a pediatric endocrinologist and researcher at Harvard University and Boston Children's Hospital. If industry is paying scientists, and then those scientists are producing results that are favorable to industry's position, there's probably not a single one of those scientists who doesn't believe their objective. How, how does that happen? You know, I kind of think of it as um, little toy sailboats on a lake that are all, you know, in calm weather, they're all sort of floating in different directions and all parts of the lake get explored. But financial conflicts are like a prevailing wind that blow in one direction. They select for investigators with a priori bias toward one hypothesis. That's not, you know, all investigators have their own pre-existing mindset. So they select for those. They fund the studies that are most likely to be favorable. The investigators themselves have a 
at least a subconscious financial interest in interpreting the studies in the most favorable way to the funder. That's human nature. So there are multiple you know, um, breezes that are blowing, that are pushing these boats to one side of the lake. It's not that those studies are you know, necessarily wrong, but there is an overall massive bias that emerges into the literature as a result. One of the areas where these issues come to the forefront most dramatically is in food and nutrition. And just as COVID-19 has forced us to re-examine every part of the way we work and socialize, so too has it highlighted vulnerabilities in the supply chain and food safety systems, as well as nutritional challenges faced by those most at risk from COVID and other maladies. According to Feeding America, a nonprofit organization of over 200 food banks, 42 million Americans were food insecure in 2020, 10 million more than before the pandemic. Here's Dr. Christine Chiaffi, formerly of PepsiCo, now a senior advisor to private equity companies focused on the food and beverage industry. As we've come through the COVID and we've seen the inequities on basically fundamental health and wellness, that a lot of the U.S. population is struggling with. A lot of that is steeped in nutrition, diet, whether it's food insecurity or food desert. What's the go forward? How do we support and enable food and beverage companies to put their money and their time into the right type of research? And where is it that we say these facts are established and proven and let's stop the spin? According to the CDC, six in 10 young people and five in 10 adults consume at least one sugary drink on any given day, and fewer than one in 10 Americans eat enough fruits and vegetables. As a result of diets high in fat, salt, and sugar, Americans are at increased risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, cancer, and impaired brain function. 40% of American adults are obese. We don't eat well, and as a result, we often don't feel well either. But if we want to make better choices for our nutritional health, how do we know whether we can trust the labels on the food we buy? Who controls what or how we eat? Here's Dr. Ludwig again. My interest in conflicts of interest dates to about 2001, when my colleagues and I had a paper in The Lancet linking sugary beverages to obesity in children. The paper attracted the attention of policymakers who cited it in proposals to tax sugary beverages and limit access to them at schools. But before these proposals could be adopted, several negative studies were published purporting to show no relationship between sugary beverages and body weight. These studies had mostly weak designs, such as cross-sectional analysis, and they were funded by the sugary beverage industry. The industry in turn used these studies to lobby against the new policy proposals, and they succeeded, at least at first, in blocking public health action. So these events motivated me to examine the associations between study sponsorship and outcomes of scientific articles. In 2007, we published a paper showing that when a food company sponsors a study, the conclusions are at least four times as likely to be favorable to the company compared to independently funded studies. So what is currently being done to try to mitigate these problems? One of the most commonly used tools against conflicts of interest is disclosure. 
the act of revealing personal or financial interests that may or may not influence the clinician or researcher. In theory, a disclosure may help a patient decide whether the medical care they receive is in their best interests, or it may help a policymaker decide whether a study they're about to reference is unbiased. And in theory, this sounds like an obvious approach to averting a conflict of interest. Knowledge is power, after all. But as with anything, it has its drawbacks. Here's Dr. Neil Poe, a professor at UCSF and chief of medicine at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. If I'm a patient and I see a doctor and the doctor discloses that they have a relationship with a pharmaceutical company, for the average patient, that means nothing. The average patient doesn't know what to do with that information. Does that mean I shouldn't trust my doctor? Does that mean that if he gives me a pill from that pharmaceutical company, I should question it? It's not really meaningful information for the patient, but we often pretend that it is. Out of context and just as a disclosure, I don't think it really does that much. And here's Dr. Brownell again. The purpose of disclosure is that somehow transparency will change things. But I'm wondering if it's not the scientific equivalent of doing something wrong and then not being held accountable for it. You know, so for example, if I come up and kick you in the leg, but I disclose the fact that I kicked you in the leg, does this somehow forgive me from kicking you in the leg? And the whole process of disclosure is that the behavior is okay. It's questionable. That's why we have to disclose it in the first place. But we're not going to ask you to change the behavior. We're just going to have to ask you to admit that you did it. And I'm wondering about the, the fundamental logic of the, this whole process. Another fundamental problem here is that disclosure statements almost always speak only to potential financial conflicts. But the taking of money is only one of many ways a scientist might develop conflicts. Here's Dr. Kaplan. A key aspect of managing conflict of interest has been disclosure and transparency, basically financial trying to get people to say, where do you take money? Who's your sponsor? Uh, how does that potentially influence what you say or what you publish or what your findings are? It's pretty clear that uh, disclosure and transparency has not included <laughs> much more than financial conflict of interest. And while that's certainly central, other things have been going on in the past year where people might say, I'd like you to disclose your political affiliation, or I'd like you to disclose whether or not you felt pressured by a public official to come out in a certain way. The whole notion of disclosure and transparency, how broad does it go? How much should we expect? Can we even manage any of those non-financial aspects? I think is something we have to think about in terms of the adequacy of our tools. The other protection I think we've got for managing conflict of interest is peer review. We try to vet uh, what people are submitting or saying in journals so that we can weed out uh, some sources of bias, some uh, threats to objectivity in our knowledge. But even the hunt for people to do peer review in the past year has been really difficult. Uh, I know personally I'm swamped with requests from journals to do peer review, and I hear from colleagues that the same is true for them. So the system is really stressed. So what is to be done? Several important ideas were laid out during these sessions. One is the idea of changing the funding model for research. 
particularly in areas like nutrition. By shifting research funding away from industry and toward public sources, and also better regulating how and when industry does get involved, some of these fundamental conflicts may be removed. Here's Dr. Ludwig, followed by Dr. Chiaffi. Nutrition research in general, and including funded by the NIH, is a fraction of the total research spent on topics that relate to nutrition, such as diabetes or obesity. And so even though nutrition companies might have a relatively small amount of money, they can focus it like a laser on topics that are of financial interest to them. In fact, that's their, in a capitalist society, that's their fiduciary interest. If they're supporting research for broad public health purposes that undermine a product, they're in conflict with their financial model. So I don't fault the companies. I fault the regulatory systems and government to understand that industry must be regulated in this way as it's regulated in many other ways. Tobacco, car safety, all sorts of areas are regulated so that industry behavior is not antagonistic to public health. Companies are in business to support and promote their brands. They're trying to focus and prioritize your spending accordingly. So with that kind of being said, I, I think what's important is to take a look at the type of research that's being funded by food and beverage companies, not just the sheer count of what percent is funded, but what's the value? Where is it that that research is actually adding information? I think disclosure is one tool, but I think if it's only viewed in isolation without fundamentally fixing the problem statement that I think we're all circling around, which is that we are under-resourcing nutrition research and we're allowing what is probably for the vast body of the publications, not the highest quality research that it could be or should be, then disclosure to me is a less effective tool than if it goes hand in glove with also then being accountable for higher quality and more productive research at the other end. And I think it goes whether or not it's the food and beverage side of the house or the academic collaborations that are happening. Another important theme was the empowerment of the general public. Collecting good data about science and health and reporting it in a clear, straightforward manner can help people better recognize conflicts when they arise and learn to confront them. Here's Dr. Bright, followed by Meg Terrell, senior health and science reporter for CNBC. Again, it's hard for the media to understand the nuances of those that language coming through a document instead of the hype of we have an EUA for hydroxychloroquine must be working as great as the president thinks it is. But those nuances and without having access to the scientists behind it make it very difficult to tell the story. Well, I think a lot of that does happen in reporting and it is something that as a, as a reporter, I have to fight against constantly you know somebody will see a headline saying this is a cure and sometimes it comes from the companies themselves massively overselling their drugs and that's happening constantly now too sometimes it comes from a newspaper or another cable network i think you know you can start to realize where those stories are coming from and who's overselling things unfortunately it's the places some people choose to get their news from all i can do is on my network you know use the years i've had of understanding how to cover drug development and say that's bs 
that's real. And, you know, just tell people, hold on, you know, don't book this CEO who's pitching himself to literally every show because he thinks his vaccine is going to work, you know, just trying to like rein things in a little bit. But this is a real, it's a real problem with these, when you have a pandemic or an epidemic, I mean, Ebola, Zika, anything, this happens always. Here's Dr. Deborah Burks of the Centers for Disease Control, who served as White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator under President Trump. My biggest problem was trying to assemble data from both commercial laboratory, hospital laboratories, getting information so that you could really see where the pandemic was going. You know, age, race, ethnicity, and I get it on a regular basis so that you can really support those hospitals. And I think we do have to have some reconciliation between our public health system, which is very interested in populations and pandemics and really ensuring the health of the overall country and our privatized hospital system. This need to collect better data and communicate it more clearly is as pressing a necessity in ongoing conversations like the one around nutrition as it is in urgently topical ones like the one about COVID-19. Here's Dr. Chiaffi again. There's basically four ways that a food and beverage company can talk to their consumer. The first way is through that nutrition label panel that's sitting on the back of the pack, right? And that's very fact-based. It's the size of the serving. It's the calories. It's the saturated fat. It's the added sugars. It's the other important uh, nutrients that may be provided to the consumer by virtue of consuming that product. The other way you can talk to the consumer is the front of the pack, and that's where you get into basically nutritional claims. You might get into structure function, or you might get into real health-based claims. Then the other way that food and beverage company can talk to the consumer is through marketing and advertising, and that's usually we'll take whatever is on the back of the pack, the front of the pack, and then talk about how that consumer might enjoy that particular food and beverage product. The fourth piece is through the brand. When you get into the other parts of the back of the pack, the front of the pack, that are more of these softer claims, that's where I think food and beverage companies are challenged with how vigorously do you pursue science and research within that space versus taking a safer stance, which is basically to say, contains the following ingredient and allow the consumer to extrapolate. And of course... As much as government regulation and the input of academia are crucial parts of this puzzle, in areas like nutrition, real progress will only come quickly if industry buys in. Here's Dr. Gerald Mand of the Center for Science in the Public Interest. Well, as we heard about the funding of science, we rely heavily on the industry. Uh, but because of its influence in uh, politics, it's only until um, uh, they're not blocking something that something can move forward. Uh, the industry, you know, it's a big industry and that trillions of dollars and it has enormous political uh, clout and it's keeping policy from moving forward. The government will need to do its part, but I think the industry has to be part of the solution. I think we are at a period of time driven mostly by consumers who are demanding healthier food, where increasingly there are some companies that are, are willing to be part of the uh, solution. And of course, any regulation or policy is only as good as how well it is enforced. Here's Mr. Sheehan. So what happens? Do people follow the regulations? The key here to me in thinking about conflicts of interest is not just what does the policy say and what do we think we're doing, but how effectively is it implemented 
and that people know it's going to be paid attention to. The toughest part of a conflict of interest policy is not having one in writing. It's making sure that your people know about it, that they report conflicts of interest, and that it is enforced by the organization. Whose job should it be to make sure that conflicts of interest are disclosed? And you need a system. Uh, when we've subpoenaed conflict of interest reporting, we find is it's sitting in some drawer somewhere. There's no system for capturing it. It irritates the people who have to make the disclosures, and it doesn't make the information available to make decisions. If conflicts of interest are so complex, so widespread, and so intrinsically bound up in natural human failures that they are basically inevitable, does that mean that there's no hope for solving this problem? Some panelists were more optimistic. Here with some final reflections from the last panel of the conference are Dr. Vinay Prasad of UC San Francisco and Dr. Jeffrey Flyer of Harvard Medical School. So I am optimistic because I think that these conversations, you don't turn this around on a dime, this battleship, and you need to be able to engage in these dialogues, even while we respectfully disagree. I think I disagree with some of the panelists. I think you can have better conflicts of interest policy. We can do some of these things. And the first step is to try to persuade others um, that these do exert influences in ways that result in the marketplace having lots of products that are very, very expensive, that are very, very uncertain, some of which don't do what we think they do. And, and, and that's the task of those of us who, take, who believe this is a problem, to prove it to others. In order to treat a problem, you have to properly understand it and diagnose it. So when we're in a world where people say COI and they think it means A, B, and C and in a very narrow, shallow way, you're not gonna you're not gonna properly diagnose it and treat it. So you need to have proper attention to it. And I would say after a period of time of a lot of narrow repetitions of things that didn't really embrace the full understanding of this concept, this conference has re-elevated it to a level of discussion between smart people in an interdisciplinary way, whether they be psychologists, social scientists, political scientists, doctors, drug developers, FDA, they're all, they need to kind of tee it up this way. And my hope would be that by having had this conversation, I know that I am interested in thinking more broadly in the future about how to make things better. No, there's no solving human nature. But we can address the difficulties we create for ourselves, first by acknowledging that a problem exists, and then by making a good faith effort to address it. A single symposium can't fix the systemic, deeply entrenched issues with conflicts of interest in healthcare. But it's a step in the right direction. I don't want drugs that are super expensive and don't work. Why would I want that? You know, uh, and neither do most people. So we are aligned in the end result. That's why I said earlier, we want integrity and truth. We want professionalism in the meaningful sense of that term, both in industry and academia. And the way to get there is to have smart people talking honestly about the areas where they might think they disagree. And they'll finally figure out they disagree less. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman, and I co-produced this episode. It was written and co-produced by Charlotte Moore. 
Executive producer, Dr. Melanie Brickman Borchard. All the quotes heard in today's episode were taken from presentations given at the event, Conflicts of Interest in Healthcare, Opportunities for Self-Reflection and Action, held virtually by the Academy, March 10th and 11th, 2021. Very special thanks to all the experts we heard from, Dr. Barbara Redman, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, and Dr. Andrea Jones-Roy from New York University, Dr. Jason Dana of Yale University, Dr. Donald Berry of MD Anderson Cancer Center, Dr. Cynthia Patton of Verily Life Sciences, Dr. Rick Bright of the Rockefeller Foundation, Dr. Christopher T. Robertson of Boston University, Dr. Bernard Lowe, Dr. Neil Poe, and Dr. Vinay Prasad of the University of California, San Francisco, James Sheehan of the New York State Office of the Attorney General, Dr. Kelly Brownell of Duke University, Dr. David Ludwig and Dr. Jeffrey Flyer of Harvard University, Meg Terrell of CNBC, Gerald Mand of the Center for Science in the Public Interest, Dr. Christine Chiaffi, and Dr. Deborah Burks. For more information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and all of your favorite podcast apps, and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter and Instagram, or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, the world's smartest network. <laughs>